Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we begin in Iceland, where we head to find out why volcanic eruptions are a big cause for concern. Just south of the capital, Reykjavik, an entire town has had to be evacuated. Some homes already destroyed by lava flows. A volcanologist tells us what's going on. Are we increasingly becoming addicted to food? And are ultra-processed foods engineered to hook us a big part of that problem? How do you break the habit? One of Canada's leading food addiction experts and author of a book called Food Junkies is with me to explain. With Donald Trump, the heavy favorite to become the Republican nominee to face President Joe Biden in November's election and potentially win a second term in the White House, Kim Nossel's new book called Canada Alone, Navigating the Post-American World, looks at what a second Trump term could mean for this country and the global order that Canada has come to rely on over so many years. But first, last night we spoke with the author and performer Kelly Carlin, daughter of the late great comedian George Carlin, about a new AI-generated hour-long special called George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. The people behind it call it an imitation and a tribute. Kelly Carlin is not amused. We find out more tonight about the rules around art and AI and whether the law is keeping pace with technology. Let's bring you more now on an interview I did last night with Kelly Carlin, author, performer, and the only child of the late great comedian George Carlin. She was on to talk about a new AI-generated special posted to YouTube last week called George Carlin, I'm Glad I'm Dead. Uh, and she, well, here, have a listen to what it, what it sounds like. Hello, my name is Dudesy, and I'm a comedy AI. Before I get started, I just want to let you know very clearly that what you're about to hear is not George Carlin. It's my impersonation of George Carlin. I'd like to start off with a heartfelt apology. I'm sorry it took me so long to come out with new material, but I, I do have a pretty good excuse. I was dead. <laughs> so technically, it wasn't my fault. If you want to blame somebody, you're going to have to blame God. <laughs> you get a promotion, praise Jesus. You get fired. God is testing me. <laughs> Yeah, so you get the point, right? It's meant to be an imitation. They say it's not supposed to be a replica. It's an imitation. But, of course, the family was never consulted. They went ahead with this anyway. It's not particularly good. I mean, it sounds a little bit like him, uh, but he's been gone for a while. And clearly, Kelly Carlin and all those affiliated with George Carlin, the late George Carlin, are not amused. Not at all. I really feel that... It's the tip of the spear and they poked the wrong bear. And um, we are not just wanting to defend ourselves and our own right to protect our rights of publicity and our copyrighted and intellectual property. But I feel that it's important that we draw a line in the sand for others, uh, whether they be celebrities dead or alive, but really humans, just humans. Yeah, you can hear my whole interview with Kelly uh, Carlin on last night's show. Uh, the podcast is available at a littlemoreconversation.com or anywhere you find your favorite podcast. It's a great chat, but I wanted to follow up on it because she raises an inter interesting question there. Is it allowed? How is the law keeping pace with fast-changing technology? And what is the situation here in Canada? Someone who knows is Valentine Goddard. She's a lawyer and inter-arts curator. She sits on the advisory council uh, of AI of Canada, and she's founder and executive director of a nonprofit called AI Impact Alliance. Valentine, thank you. That's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Ben. This one is such, a, I mean, it's such an interesting topic because it feels like we've been talking about what this may look like for a while. And in watching that AI George Carlin thing, I thought, aha, 
this is what we've been talking about. I mean, maybe not in in every way, shape, or form, but it certainly felt like what uh, folks had been uh, musing about and warning about for a while. It it certainly feels like the future is now. (laughs) Uh, For better or worse. Yes, for the better or the worse. It was the first copyrighted uh, AI-generated, fully AI-generated film in uh, South Korea last week. Uh, in India, fully generated AI film as well. So really, this is starting to uh, come out and emerge, and we're going to see more and more of it this year, I think. Yeah, I, I suppose there's you can't put this technology back in the box, right? So let's. So I guess the key is to try to figure out how we're going to work with it and 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 protect certain things that we've come to appreciate. Just your reaction to the to the AI generated Carlin. I'm I'm interested to know what you thought in watching it as someone in your shoes. Um, I I had so many ideas when I was um, watching this. Uh, it, I have to admit, it did make me uh, laugh out loud a couple times. Um, so it was well-trained um, AI. Um, and, uh, you know, George Carlin is is uh, a really, is, he's a funny person. And, yeah. you know, obviously they used his texts and his recordings to, to train the AI. So um, it was funny in some parts. It was extremely long in others. Um, a number of questions uh, popped up. So, for example, um, this is not really AI generated. It's highly human curated. They put a lot of work clearly into making this. Um, It's trained on on what kind of data. It's trained on biometric data of a person who's passed away for many years now, but whose family is still alive. Uh, So that whole social acceptability, the cringiness, of that mostly is where my thoughts were going. And then when I started looking into the legal, breaking down the legal questions, is like, well, how can artists now now protect themselves for for tomorrow? For yeah. do they need to start um putting copyright more right clauses in their estate planning for for future purposes? Yeah. I mean that's that's what sort of struck me because I think what what emerged from that conversation was, well, wait a second, is this on the up and up? Because there is a disclaimer at the beginning where whereby the creators of this, um, with the aid of AI, say that this is just an imitation. It's not meant to be the real thing. Uh is that is that enough? No, I don't believe it's um it's enough. That definitely they put some guardrails. Um, I read that I think it was uh Tom Brady, the football player, the first comedy Brady, that yeah. they mm-hmm. released. Um, well, they received um, uh, a, a lawsuit threat and they had to remove all of that work offline. You can tell that a lot of the discla- disclaimers that they put around this com- generated comedy um, was probably informed by a team of, of lawyers. They're, right. Even comedy itself, is it considered art? Does it fall under copyright? Um, there's a number of questions that they really um, skate uh, around to be in the in the safe zone, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I was interested in the fact that that, that you know, I, I, clearly the family would have said no if they'd been asked. So, mm-hmm. as yeah. as as Kelly Carlin put it, uh, they clearly decided they would be, they would ask for forgiveness, not permission. Uh, mm-hmm. But in this case, you would think that one of the first steps you would want to take is to get permission to do something like this, right, from the people who who are closest to the estate of of said person. Yes, um, I think that would be the acceptable and and proper thing proper thing to do. Um, but I think a lot that it's a typical attitude in in Silicon Valley and uh, is let's put it out there and let's let's see what happens. Um, I also noticed that they the um, 
uh, AI provider is under a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, So that I felt was interesting because it means the AI provider doesn't want to be known and doesn't want to be associated with um, this project. Uh, So by making it an artistic exploration, by making sure that they say many times as a disclaimer that this this is not the real George Carlin, they're, you know, avoiding to be seen as voluntary inducing people into error. Um, But one thing, you know, that clearly they should have done right from the start is ask for permission on the living relatives of George Carlin. But also we have to mention all the artwork because there's a lot of visual work in in their comedy. And that is trained on the non-consensual use of artwork that is online. It's web scraped data and a lot of it was not used with permission. Um, So there's that visual aspect uh, which is being discussed right now. There's the Canadian copyright law Uh, Just January 15th, just this week, uh, the consultation uh, deadline um, just passed, and we will be seeing um, a report um, on what the community, uh, different stakeholders in Canada, how they responded to this copyright um, consultation. And the goal was to how do we need to uh, change copyright law in Canada to adapt to uh, generative AI, generative AI being this type of comedy, for example, whether it be visual or text or film or sound or music. Yeah, because it feels like just watching how fast it's evolved. One of the things that struck me about about that AI generated George Carlin wasn't so much about the quality of it. It was just how how quickly people have been able to come up with something like that. And I think that was a sort of an old school consumer of this stuff. I thought, wow, that, you know, the, the difference between what the imagination can dream up and what could be produced uh, has, has, I mean, it is, it has gotten, the space between those two things has gotten very small, very fast. Yes. Well, I mean, there's the early adopters of which um, I'm part. I started exploring the use of what uh, generative AI used to be called text to image generation mm-hmm. or text to text generation and some of my earlier art projects were exploring the use of uh, the words that I use, what kind of images come out, are they biased? Uh, and it was so abstract um, at the time, even in 2019. However, I've been following the evolution of those tools very quickly. Uh, so some of the tools that they're using um, in this generated comedy uh, include uh, probably Runway ML, which is a free platform in which you can input text and ask it to generate a video. So the moving right. actors, when they're moving their lips, that's probably what they're using. Uh, synthetic um, voice deep fakes were already being made in the in 2019. Uh, so it's just the quality and the open source models uh, are more and more available. Right. I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how long would it take to put together something like that? I think it's the it's it's not necessarily the generation, but the well, that's what I meant at the beginning, like the highly curated aspect of this right. project. I would say it took them months, many months right. to to do this because what they did basically is they either trained what is called um, a rag, uh, so a retrieval augmented generation system. Or they fine-tuned what you call large language models, so uh, a system such as uh, GPT, a chat GPT. Right. You can fine-tune them to 
um, produce specific type of content, or some people use that to remove bias in uh, overall content. Right. So there's that part in itself would take, mm, I would say, at least two months, uh, probably more given they really did um, a deep decent job and they're working with an AI provider in the background. Probably has a big team. Valentine Goddard is with us this half hour. She's a lawyer with uh, a lot of expertise in artificial intelligence. We're talking about this conversation I had last night. If you didn't hear it, you can uh, tune in or you can go find it on the podcast at a littlemorconversation.com or anywhere you find your favorite podcast. I was speaking with Kelly Carlin, the daughter, the only child of the late, great George Carlin, about this AI-generated YouTube comedy special featuring, uh, well, her father, who passed away 15 years ago, uh, and and just the reaction to it. Her reaction, of course, has been a negative one. Uh, Valentina, how are we doing on, on keeping pace legally with what's happening in the technology? You watch both these uh, both these fields, so you'll know. Um, yes, um, I have to add a, a short disclaimer of my own. I'm not necessarily a copyright uh, law expert. However, uh, the use of um, art in the generative AI space and the AI space has led me to take deeper dives into the legal field of copyright and, and moral rights and um, and so on. The in Canada, you know, this type of the, the George Carlin's work would have been protected by copyright. If I remember correctly, he did use to sell albums. Uh, those uh, should still be protected in Canada. Uh, because they follow the life of the creator for 70 years. Um, however, so that right should be following um, his work, even though he was. And however, the the one thing I wanted to point um, to is the existence of moral rights. So as long as right. the artist is alive, there are moral rights. And what what that means, it's the it's the part of the copyright law um that is serves to protect your artwork uh, artist artwork against distortion alteration mutilations or uses in which well, you don't feel comfortable with so when i was watching that that video it's quite political um mm -hmm. and it's um quite it, it really pushes certain questions that are contemporary questions um and i i'm thinking of his daughter or a Maybe, maybe he would have taken a different stance politically. Maybe knowing the state of disinformation, polarization in society, maybe he would have adapted his type of humor. So I yeah. really understand the pain that his daughter feels and the anger that she feels because moral rights is that legal right that protects your work from being associated with a, a cause or a political position against you would be um opposed right. and as kelly the, pointed out we'll never know because he's not here to say right that's the problem therein lies the problem so those rights are different if you've if you've passed those rights are different after you after you die is that right yes moral rights do not continue after they cannot be passed on to here's to the estate copyrights can some artists are uh like michael jackson or john lennon make a lot of money after they pass away and uh, but moral rights can't. So I think that's an area, a gray zone that will need to be addressed uh, to protect artists. Unless we start including is, the, such clauses around the fair use, the moral rights in in our wills, in artists' wills, in right. how we want our biometric data, our voice, our movement for dancers, um, 
our, our, our faith, our, our heartbeat. Well, Valentina, you're right. This, this opens up a whole big can of worms. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Well, earlier this week, we talked about what was going on in Iowa. Of course, the Iowa caucuses kick off uh, the race to become uh, the Republican presidential candidate in U.S. elections coming up in November. Uh, Donald Trump had a very good night, not unsurprisingly. Uh, He didn't, I mean, this is not a huge number of votes, by the way, but he dominated those who did vote, getting more than 50%. uh, And he seems to be well on his way to... Uh, having a rematch with Joe Biden come November, uh, a very high stakes rematch, uh, as it would be. And uh, here's how President Biden describes it. Whether democracy is still America's sacred cause is the most urgent question of our time. And it's what the 2024 election is all about. Yeah, as this race now heads to New Hampshire with Trump holding a commanding lead, you can imagine that folks in Ottawa are watching nervously across the border to see how this year, this entire year, will unfold in U.S. politics and what a return of Trump to the White House may mean for us. It wasn't easy the first time around. There is, a, If there is a second time, it won't be easy either, True, uh, Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister, said uh, earlier this week in French at an event held by the Montreal Chamber of Commerce. To put it mildly, To put it mildly, he added, but we can't imagine a day when it will be easy with the Americans. The main responsibility for any prime minister is to represent and defend Canada's interest. Well, just how well have successive governments been defending Canada's interest? That's a big question. And it comes after a bruising few years for this country on the world stage. Relations with China are in the deep freeze. There are now tensions, high tensions with India. No need to talk about Russia. That's been, you know, that one's been on ice for a better part of a decade now since Russia's uh, initial invasion and takeover over invasion of Ukraine and takeover of Crimea, Um, tensions with Turkey, a spat with Saudi Arabia that only thawed last year. You get the point. But sometimes in the bruising schoolyard of geopolitics, Canada hasn't had to spend much time looking over our shoulder. Secure, and you can forgive the analogy here, that the toughest kid on the block, the biggest kid on the block, had our back. And um, it allowed us to live in a bit of a protective bubble. But what if that is all changing? What if we need to start watching our back now and getting a much better feel of what's going on and fast with major shifts this century in China, Russia, India, and most importantly, perhaps the United States? What if we find ourselves far more alone than we've been in the past, needing not only to be aware of what's happening around us, but also better plan how to defend our interests and make ourselves heard. Kim Nossel is a professor of a professor emeritus of political studies at the Center for International and Defense Policy at Queen's University. And he's author of a great book called Canada Alone, Navigating the Post-American World. Kim, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for very much for having me, Ben. I, I, please forgive the schoolyard analogy, but I always think of it when we think about our relationship. Um, <laughs> you know, that, you know that this for very for a very long time we've had this sort of, and I, I really hit home to me when I was working abroad. I lived in China for a while and worked there. That Canada sort of wandered around the schoolyard as if we had a big pl- a place at the big table, but often others didn't see us that way. They really saw us as being protected by the Americans. And I think, and you've mentioned it in the book, we sort of took that for granted for a very long time. Absolutely. And I mean, the thing is that we were there at the table, uh, at least for the last 80 years or so, because that's the kind of world uh, that uh, we've had since the end of the Second World War, where small countries like Canada can be at the table of of global politics, of geopolitics, uh, engaging in uh, the, the, uh, the rough and tumble 
um, and actually having a say. And part of the reason for that is is the willingness of the United States uh, to essentially allow smaller countries to engage. And that's, of course, what the big difference uh, with the rise of Trump uh, and uh, the change in the international system, uh, that little countries like Canada, relatively little, uh, simply won't have that, that kind of seat at the table anymore. Have we, have we figured that out yet? Because it feels like we still wander around the schoolyard uh, sort of whistling and not paying much attention sometimes. And I'm going to stop with the analogy uh, there, Kim, I promise. Yeah, well, I, I, I think so, because, because one of the things about the schoolyard analogy uh, is that uh, the schoolyard has been fairly distant from us, uh, in, especially in the last 25, 30 years, with the end of uh, the Cold War and the end of the, in a sense, uh, the threat of nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, and so that the, the schoolyard analogy begins to, in a sense, break down. Mm-hmm. However, in the last 10 years or so, it's now come very much back into play. And, and some of the nastier folks in the schoolyard, we are, uh, uh, we're, we're paying a little more attention. But the problem is we've gotten so used to not paying attention, and in particular, and most importantly, we've grown so used to not spending any money on international affairs. We have, for the last 20 or so years, really done international politics on the cheap. Uh, and uh, we Canadians, have, uh, generally speaking, have sent to Ottawa people who don't like spending money on uh, uh, on global affairs. And so, in a sense, what we're now facing is a situation where we do have a nastier environment out there, uh, but uh, we've got serious problems actually paying to play in that schoolyard, if you like. Right. Uh, you wrote an interesting, uh, you co-authored an interesting piece in the Globe and Mail as well, right around the time the book came out, uh, where you talked about Canada's foreign policy being performative. And I don't think you were only mentioning this government, but for a very long time, it feels like, and I, I think what we saw, what we've seen, it, we've seen it happen in the last 12 months easily, that we've seen foreign policy in this country where everywhere they sort of the the, the the look to the the eyes turn towards the diaspora in Canada or or the power you know whatever influence groups happen to exist here and not outwards to the world to figure out how it's going to land there we always worry about how it's going to land here and that's an odd way of doing foreign policy uh, it's it's an odd way uh, in many respects but for Canadians this is the way it's worked so well for the last couple of decades the fact is that that. Uh, it is by being performative, uh, given the nature of the Canadian political system, uh, that essentially allows uh, politicians in Ottawa to understand that what they've got to do when they engage in foreign policy uh, is to present themselves primarily to groups within Canada, oftentimes ignoring what the impact is going to be Outside And certainly what we've seen uh, in the case of the relationship with India, uh, that, has, that has ended up costing us big time. 
Yeah. Uh, you you talked about as well about, about Canada needing a bit of a jolt. Now, we've had jolts in our history, whether it was uh, before the four, you know, just before the, the, the First World War or just before the Second World War or our involvement in the Second World War. We've had jolts before. And you, you suggest that, that perhaps we need or are about to have another one. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that generally speaking, Canadians uh, have been lucky in the sense that since the 1860s, uh, we haven't had, uh, except for those two major occasions, uh, the, that kind of, of gut punch, uh, as it were, that prompts us to engage in the kind of spending, uh, not only in terms of treasure, but in terms of lives, uh, that we devoted to the, those global conflicts in the First and Second World Wars. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, one would not want to wish that gut punch at this point, um, but it's likely that until we do, we're not going to uh, uh, change our attitudes very fast towards what's happening out there. All things considered, um, I, I've, at least I thought that the way that Canada handled Donald Trump's first term went relatively well. I, I get the impression, and this is just from everything I think you, you would agree, that a second term might look very different. Absolutely. I mean, Mr. Mr. Trudeau, uh, when uh, uh, Donald Trump came to power, Mr. Trudeau was extremely, extremely disciplined in how he dealt with this bizarre administration in Washington. And he managed to do it fairly well for one and a half, two years. It all fell apart uh, in the summer of 2018. Uh, and the relationship with uh, Trump uh, simply deteriorated. Uh, but uh, Mr. Trudeau understands, of course, that, that the relationship between every uh, American friend and ally disintegrated. Uh, at around the same time. If Mr. Trump returns to the White House in January of 2025, you're exactly right. This is not going to be just simply a return to 2017. Mr. Trump's going to arrive in the White House uh, with a clear plan, uh, both in domestic politics and in foreign policy. Uh, he now has a uh, what he didn't have in 2017, and that is a disciplined, relatively disciplined uh, uh, group of folks who are ready to take over the American state. Uh, and uh, essentially, his plan is to fill those positions with loyalists uh, who are committed to the achievement of a sort of a Trump agenda. And that Trump agenda is going to be really difficult for Canadians. Uh, because Mr. Trump uh, has declared himself to be tariff man, uh, and it is, uh, and he has promised that when he comes to power on day one, there's going to be a 10% tariff on everything that comes into the United States. This is going to be hugely disruptive uh, for Canadians, for our interests, um, for access to the American market, uh, and. Uh, the fact that Mr. Trump absolutely does not like uh, uh, Justin Trudeau adds to the problems for uh, Canadians. 
Great to have Kim Nossel here with us this half hour. He's a professor emeritus of political studies at Queen's University. His book is called Canada Alone, Navigating the Post-American World. We've been talking about uh, many issues about Canada's role in geopolitics and uh, the potential of a second Trump presidency, what that could mean. Uh, Kim, I'm I'm obviously interested with with the title of the book itself. I mean, the idea of Canada alone, it sounds very stark for a country that's always been a great uh, admirer of, of sort of the strength in, strength in numbers, so to speak. Absolutely. And, and the, the idea behind Canada alone uh, is essentially explored in the book. What happens if uh, Trump returns to the White House? What happens to the world uh, that Americans have essentially created and led in the, the so-called international order since the Second World War? And what the book does is, is try and trace out the likelihood of the collapse of that order uh, as Trump basically upends it. And the way that I think that he's going to upend it is he's, if, if he returns to power is very quickly he is going to abandon Ukraine uh, and that will be followed shortly after uh, by an American withdrawal from NATO And what that's going to do is to essentially disrupt the kind of cozy transatlantic relationship that Canada has always had, uh, certainly in the last 80 years. And that's going to essentially create a huge disruption between the Europeans on the one hand and the Americans on the other. And in that sense, we're going to find ourselves, for a whole variety of reasons, with the Americans rather than with the Europeans. There's no way that, that given where we are and given where Canadians live uh, and given how we generate our wealth, there's no way that we're going to become Europeans. The second part is across the Pacific. Uh, and here it's likely that, uh, the, that a Trump administration is going to ratchet up uh, the conflict with China And what that's going to do is going to disrupt, severely disrupt the Western countries in the Western Pacific. Japan, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. And the idea there is that those countries are going to have to make their peace with China rather than gather around the United States. Because the Americans are going to, bluntly put, screw up their relations with the Western countries in the Pacific. And if we don't have Europeans and if we don't have our Western allies in the Pacific, then truly we're going to be all alone uh, with the United States in North America. And that's the, that's yeah. the essence of the, of the argument in the book. Yeah, sleeping next to a, a very jittery elephant, unfortunately. And, and, um, and, a, and, and a nasty one, because... And if, a nasty one. Mr. No, you're right. If Mr. Trump comes to power, um, the United States is going to take a a very nasty authoritarian turn. Uh, It's going to become very much more illiberal uh, than uh, than we've seen in the past. Um, And very simply because that's what Mr. Trump and his allies are committed to. Um, the, uh, the, The whole Red Caesar movement in the United States is all about creating a, a strong man to deal with all of the problems that the United States pres- 
faces at, at present. And it's going to be a Caesar kind of individual um, and red for Republican, uh, obviously. Uh, and that's going to be a problem. It strikes me that even if he doesn't win, uh, for instance, say we get another four years of Joe Biden, which will, you know, would be a relief, I'm sure, to some. The idea that Trumpism is here, that attitude about America's place in the world and how it should treat its foes and friends uh, won't go away, though. That, that Canada needs to have this reckoning, even if it avoids another Trump presidency. That's true. Although if, if Mr. Biden happens to return uh, to the White House or remain in the White House in 2025, uh, then at least we will have bought a little time. Because one of the things about the, the Biden administration is that while it may be uh, uh, a protectionist administration, just as protectionist as, as uh, Trumpists are, uh, the fact is that the Biden administration cares about America's friends and allies. Uh, and in that sense, we can, we can see a little bit more of the continuation uh, of the um, of the American world. If Mr. Trump is defeated uh, in 2024, later on this year, then Trumpism will, in fact, take a hit because right. uh, the, the, the Trump movement, the MAGA movement in the United States is very much tied to him. Uh, it's true that there are some elements that can exist and are likely to continue. But, but it's really important to reflect on just how highly personalized uh, the Trumpist movement in the United States actually is. I suppose in the meantime, Canadians should be demanding of their politicians of all stripes that they take this stuff seriously and that, they, and that if it's performative, uh, that they ask some questions. Absolutely. And, and the difficulty is, of course, that our politicians, both in government and in opposition, can't really openly address the problems that they're facing in the United States. I mean, Mr. Trudeau, uh, speaking in French, uh, as you mentioned at the outset, mm -hmm. uh, uh, mentioned what's going on in the United States. But basically, uh, he then said exactly what he has to say, and that is that he can't get into uh, the, uh, the American fight, and, and essentially, uh, nor can we. We as Canadians simply have to sit back and watch and hope uh, that, the, that the conflict in the United States, the political battle in the United States, goes in a particular direction. Well, Kim, I hope this, uh, this book uh, starts the conversation that you hope it starts. It feels like it's high time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much for having me. Let's go to Uvalde now, because I don't know if you've been paying attention to this today, but there was a report um, from the U.S. Justice Department, 600-page report, that outlines what happened on that day, the police response in particular. Keep in mind, this wasn't to, to lay criminal responsibility or to, but it was to search for what happened. And here's Merrick Garland, uh, the Attorney General. As I told families and survivors last night, the department's review concluded that a series of major failures, failures in leadership, in tactics, in communications, in training, and in preparedness, were made by law enforcement lawyers and others responding to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary. 
Yeah, that was back in May of 2022. I'm sure you remember Remember, we were on air, actually 19 children and two teachers were killed. At least 17 others were wounded. Officers took 77 minutes to confront and kill the gunman who was contained with his victims inside a pair of connected classrooms at the elementary school. Uh, Merrick Garland said people would have survived if there had been a swifter response. Um, Again, uh, the Justice Department identifies these cascading failures in law enforcement's handling, again, of one of the deadliest massacres at a school in American history. Lawyer Joshua Koskoff says dozens of armed police officers, again, hesitated to confront the gunmen, and because of that, kids died. They didn't need the report to tell them that law enforcement violated its most sacred responsibility, and that is to protect our children in a time of great need. Um, they didn't need that. Why didn't they need that? Because they were there. Kimberly Rubio's daughter uh, was one of 19, one of the 19 kids killed in that shooting. I feel like the community has a right to know who played what part that day and who should be held accountable so that they can request that of our city leaders, county leaders. At least five officers have lost their jobs, including two Department of Public Safety officers and the on-site commander, Pete Arandondo. Uh, no one has been charged with a crime in this, although there are other investigations that continue. Uh, joining me now is Steve Imes. He's a former assistant police chief uh, in Springfield, Missouri, and has led training sessions on active shooter, shooter situations for police agencies since the mid-1990s. Uh, Steve, thanks for your time tonight on this one. Oh, My pleasure, sir. Uh, having a look at, I don't know if you've had a chance to see, I mean, the 600-page report's a long one, but having seen sort of the highlights of it, uh, surprised at the findings? Uh, not at all. As you said, it's a 630-page yeah. report. The executive summary, uh, I think, addresses the issues very well. And, and to be candid, uh, there's no surprises in that executive summary. The uh, facts, as we knew them within days of the event, are what that 600-page report, uh, line by line, is going to reveal. And the summary covers it pretty well. But the facts, at least in the law enforcement circles uh, that I continue to work in, were known very, very quickly that the fundamental uh, concepts that we've done uh, pretty much since Columbine, there were programs that were taught by the IACP, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, pre-Columbine that were largely ignored. Uh, myself and Don Fuhrer from my police department had began a program for IACP in 1995 uh, called uh, Response to Critical Incidents, where we, before Columbine, it just happened to be there had been some other incidents, and ICP picked up on something we had taught in our department, where we had been directing officers in that type of scenario to immediately move to neutralize. And so we began teaching that and got a lot of pushback in the mid-'90s. Uh, thankfully, Columbine really realigned that thought process for practically every department in America, and uh, you actually have very few cases, uh, Parkland in Florida and then Uvalde, that, uh, where agencies have completely failed. There are far many others where uh, in a policing concept in the United States where contrary to what many believe, there are very few national standards. That is one pretty clear standard where officers would immediately move to neutralize a dangerous person like that. But then you have Parkland, then you have Uvalde, and it makes most of law enforcement in America just shake their heads. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we spoke to law enforcement right after it happened and, and you were already shaking your heads. Where do you think the breakdown was? Because you can, 
you can say, I mean, when you read some of the background, why, you know, that there wasn't proper training for some that were on scene, there was never a command set up. I mean, it was just ever a cascading series of errors. Um, but where do you think the problem lies? Was it a lack of training? Uh, was it, was it a lack of experience? Uh, you know, was it, was it too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak? Where do you think it all fell apart? I think if you just read the summary, the crux of it is the reality that the first 12 officers within minutes that went down that hall, uh, you can read the narrative. They have body cameras that document clearly what was spoken in the first few minutes. Those 12 officers that went down to 111 and 112 were literally saying, line up, get in line, let's prepare for entry. They knew exactly what they needed to do. And at that moment, uh, this individual became aware of their presence. He fired some shots through the door. Uh, and through the wall, uh, two officers were hit with shrapnel, and there's body camera that reveals this. You can see it. Uh, the video's in the public domain, and they basically ran to a position of cover. And uh, I've been involved in shootings, ran a full-time SWAT team for many years. I understand what happens in a case like that where uh, officers next to you get shot. There's a lot of fear when that occurs. Uh, but I've taught on this issue for many, many years that there's a factor that comes into play pre-event that many officers and agencies don't conceptualize and that is literally a process where you have mentally gone through the steps of what you will do when you reach that moment where you perceive that you're at death's door and do you step forward or do you step back have you actually had family discussions where you talk to your loved ones and say I think the chance of this ever happening, happening statistically is very, very low. But you need to understand that when I get to that point where others' lives hang in the balance and I know that my life is in immediate jeopardy, I have got to push on and it may not work out. If that has not been resolved in your mind, that fundamental will to survive, uh, I won't throw the, uh, the cowardice term out there, but many have. If you've not reconciled that if today is the day, then so be it you'll turn and run. And that's exactly what those men did. I mean, the video reveals it when the shots were fired and two were hit. They, you can use whatever term they artfully did in reports, tactically retreated, moved back to cover, but they had verbalized, get in line, line up, prepare for entry. Then the shots occurred, two were wounded and they removed themselves from that entry point. Uh, they spent a lot of time messing around with the concept of, of keys you may or may not be aware that the door that they were hovering around initially and then later on was actually a broken door. It was never really locked. And I mentioned my time running a SWAT team. Uh, it's a joke in the SWAT business, but we often talk about, hey, before you ram the door, try the knob. The idea yeah. that they would never have figured out that the door really wasn't secured is beyond comprehension. They spent a lot of time looking for janitor's keys actually testing keys on common locks before they found a set. I mean, we're talking 70 minutes into it that they believed would unlock the door at 111 when, in fact, the door itself was not secured. And so many of those things that come into play at the point when they were finally going to make entry, they lost precious minutes. Many, many shots fired as officers were there, while some in a position of authority were talking about we're into a barricade phase, not a rescue phase, just completely incomprehensible. But that's what the report reveals happened. And again, I said days after this, the word was out as to what they had done. 
summon a, I, I'm, I'm not going to use the word leadership because that was not leadership, summon a manager role had decided this event had transitioned from rescue to barricade. And barricade yeah. tactics are primarily time and talk. And that absolutely is incomprehensible when children and teachers are bleeding to death. But if you read the report, they talk about some of the ranking people there had decided we are now in a barricade, not a hostage rescue scenario, which is just inconceivable that they had actually declared it that. We're now in a barricade situation. We're waiting for SWAT. We're trying to negotiate. While, in fact, these kids are on their cell phones pleading for help. Steve Iams is with us this half hour. He was formerly uh, assistant police chief with Springfield, Missouri Police, and he's led training sessions on active shooter situations for many, many years now. Um, and we're talking about a bit about the Justice Department's uh, report today on the uh, incident, well, obviously the shooting in Uvalde. The uh, 19 kids, two teachers were killed, 17 wounded. Uh, of course, this was a cascading series of failures on the part of law enforcement to save those children, or at least make an attempt to save those children. Uh, officers taking 77 minutes uh, to confront and kill the gunman ultimately. Um, Steve's been talking about some of the work he's done over the many years. Uh, where do you go from here? Because clearly the, the importance, as you well know, is training. Get it right. Um, you know, I, I've been in war zones. So people lose their lose their nerve sometimes when the rubber hits the road. And I, I suppose in part that's what happened here. But, uh, you know, when you put on that badge, I guess, I mean, you know, uh, you know, you got, you got to put duty. Duty comes first. And, and, you know, in that situation, they had to go in, right? They had to go in. Yeah, there's just no question about that. And some would tell you, uh, and a lot of civilians would tell you, well, you just can't, you know, step into a doorway and, and take a bullet. And I don't disagree with that. It's just not that simplistic. There are many things you would do in advance of that. This was a ground floor classroom. You would certainly want to distract this person, not only because you just don't want to die needlessly in the door, but you want to stop the shooter. And you can't do that when he's killing you and your friends. So, Literally, you would just create distractions. You would have people outside at a low level breaking glass uh, as you're entering. You would be drawing attention away. Basic distraction and diversion concepts that you throw together in a matter of seconds to draw attention away from your point of entry. But you have to go. That's exactly right. Uh, the kids can't defend themselves. And uh, we're well armed. We're well armored. And we're better shots than these people. And you just have to make the effort. And uh, no one wants to die, that's for certain, but no one lives forever. And that's part of what uh, we talked about earlier. But you do have to reconcile that reality that if the opportunity presents itself where you have to step into potential deadly jeopardy, you have to have reconciled that before the event presents. Because if you don't, I mean, I have countless examples where in that scenario, people will blink. And as again, you go back to this scenario, you read that summary, they knew exactly what to do. And I'll tell you that 46 years in policing, we are quick to give officers a pass and say, well, a little more training. Listen right. to the audio. They were stacked up in line. They were saying, line up, prepare for entry. They knew exactly what they needed yeah. to do. That was not you a training that. issue. You recognize that. Of course. And when the shots yeah. were fired and two people were hit. Uh, they were they were not hit critically. They were able to run. But when they realized, holy smokes, this guy's a real player, they removed themselves to a position of cover. And in fact, that's at the point that they knew where he was, that they needed to do a quick distraction and move to neutralize. That's exactly what they needed was him to shoot. So he knew exactly where he was. 
thank you. Uh, now we're going to come put you to sleep. That's what they needed to do. Yeah. Do you think they should face? I mean, there should should there be? I know there's been calls for criminal charges here. Is that is that the kind of penalty you should pay for for that for that kind of behavior in uniform? Well, I don't know that in uh, statutorily there's room for that. I mean, they tried that right. in Parkland with the school security officer. You may be aware of that. He was uh, tried and ultimately found not guilty. Just the way the statutes are written here, uh, failure to act, it's very, very difficult to find overt culpability from a criminal perspective there. Uh, I'm not sure that's appropriate. I mean, I think we have pretty clearly defined issues in a case like this. It is absolutely black and white what contemporary police practice is in a case like that. Uh, And when you don't act, uh, I don't know that what you're suggesting is unreasonable, I just don't see it in the statutes, the way the laws are written, uh, a failure to act with a criminal culpability. Again, it was tried in Florida unsuccessfully with the school resource officer at Parkland. He was tried and found not guilty, Uh, not specifically for not acting. It was actually a backdoor way where it was like endangerment of the welfare of children because there wasn't a clear statute. They tried to find a charge that kind of fit, and in the end, he was found not guilty. Well, Steve, I appreciate your insight on this, your vast experience on this as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure, sir, and I hope we don't have this conversation again. Once again, we've touched on the topic of ultra-processed foods on the show in the past. We've all eaten them. Most of us will probably have consumed some today. I'm sure I did. Uh, it was a bag of cola bottle gummies. They were delicious. But you know what I mean. Um, we would consume roughly 50% of our calories from ultra-processed foods, according to the Heart and Stroke, Heart and Stroke Foundation. Uh, that's the stuff that you find in the middle aisles of grocery shelves. They're usually things that have that pro- – you know, they're things with long lists of ingredients, many things that you wouldn't have in your cupboard at home. They are things that advertise that they are light or that they are healthy or that they are, you know, low fat. They are are the kinds of things uh, that you see on TV. I mean, essentially, they're a product more than a food, right? And uh, we actually had this really cool conversation on this topic uh, with Chris Von Tulliken, who's a British author who wrote a book um, called Ultra Processed People, The Science Behind the Food That Isn't Food. And here's what he had to say when we spoke to him. It is all around us and it makes up, whether you're in the UK or Canada, it makes up 60% of the calories that we eat. If you've got a teenager, it could well be 80 or 90%. Uh, you know, the research probably underestimates the amount we eat, but this is this is our food culture. In, in North America and the UK, this is what we eat. Right. So why is that? And why aren't we more, or we're becoming increasingly aware perhaps, of some of the, the the dangers here. But the jury is still out in some ways as well. I mean, there's been a steady stream of research linking UPFs to health conditions of all sorts, uh, but we still continue to consume them. Could it be because we can't help it? We're hooked. We're hooked. They're built that way to hook us. Um, again, uh, it's a topic that is a subject of debate. We're still uncovering more about it. Uh, a lot of us understand the addiction to things like nicotine or alcohol or drugs in general. But cookies? Chips? Really? Joining me now is Dr. Vera Tarman. Uh, she is medical director of Renaissance, one of Canada's largest treatment centers for substance abuse. And she's author of the 2019 book called Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Uh, Dr. Tarman, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to speak with you today. 
Yeah, this is one of those issues. If you think about the way people talk about food sometimes, we sometimes use the language of addiction when it comes to food. You know, I can't put down those those cookies or I'm addicted to those new chips. But we don't use it in a way that we don't seem to view it in the same way as we would say alcohol or tobacco or things or drugs for that matter. But uh, is it true that, that we can be addicted to it? Oh, we absolutely can be addicted to it. Now, one of the reasons that people do dismiss it is that they say, well, you really can't be addicted to food because you have to eat it three times a day at least. Right. Uh, but when we talk about food addiction, really what we're specifically talking about is sugar addiction and processed food addiction. We're not talking about vegetables, oranges, tomatoes. We're talking about your local grocery store and it's all the stuff on the, on the, in the middle of the, like the cereals and the, and the muffins and the cakes. That's the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, I'd read somewhere that there's almost a push in your in your field to to call it ultra processed food addiction, not yes. food addiction per se. Yeah, I actually personally like the idea of food addiction myself, but but I understand that that, that ultra processed food addiction is probably where we're going to go because it's most people can kind of get their head around that one. But I like the concept of food addiction itself because addiction, like any other mental health disorder, is progressive and and progressive and chronic and progressive. And you can actually, at some point, depending on what level of food addiction you're at, be addicted to eating foods that otherwise people wouldn't find addictive or just be addicted to eating itself. So food addiction covers the whole umbrella. But usually we're talking about the specifics like sugar. The sugar is where it starts. That's the universal. Yeah, tell me about this because it's it's evolved over time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, again, the way that it's been explained to me in the past is that you know companies that want to sell more of their food or have you, their interest is getting you to eat more of it, so they doctor it so you will, right? Absolutely. That's what they do. And that's why we're looking at that that, that term ultra processed food, because you don't see the farmer's market doing that. They just put it out there and people buy it or they they don't buy it. And I guess they're competing. But with the processed food industry, they really have to compete. And it's a finite audience. I mean, it's all of us who have to eat and they're, they're going to try to make their product something that I will reach for instead of. And so then we end up doctoring it in multiple ways. So that's the actual processing of it, which is the texturing, the flavoring, the coloring, the amount of sugar. You know, there's various people who have talked about the bliss spot for various foods. So it's it's all about how do how do I make my product such that you will buy it? And that makes foods very craveable, potentially addictive. But for a very small proportion of the population, maybe 15, 20% in the obese, we're saying as high as 40 or 50%, it's more than that. It can actually become a phenomena of where the focus now is on food, just like the alcoholic starts to favor their alcohol over other behaviors. Um, you know, they're gonna they're gonna choose to drink rather than go out to their son's baseball game. That happens with uh, uh, not everybody, but some people uh, who end up eating too much of this processed food, the the, the condition develops into its own phenomena, which we call addiction. And then uh, depending on how bad it gets, they too will choose to, I would rather watch my, uh, eat my Haagen-Dazs and watch TV rather than go out tonight and do the things that I normally do. And and the more you do that, the more that becomes part of a person's life. And that addictive pattern is the same as any other pattern that we see to the point where the person will say, hey, I've got to stop because I've got diabetes now or I'm obese, like I, I want to lose weight. And they still can't stop. Like, like the, 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 the craving to eat is so potent. And that doesn't happen to everybody, but it happens to enough people that those of us like myself in the field are saying, come on, let's take this seriously in the same way that we take alcohol and cocaine seriously. 
what is happening in the brain? I mean, is it similar to what's happening yeah, it's, to, it's when similar. we crave other things, right? Absolutely. When we talk about um, addiction, what we're talking about is dopamine. I mean, there's more neurochemicals that are involved, but that's like the granddaddy of all. Uh, that's the neurochemical that we mainly talk about, the dopamine a surplus that happens with uh, food. So if I just enjoy an orange or a strawberry, I get a nice pleasurable experience, which is dopamine, but it's normal. It's my birthright to enjoy food. And those of us who talk about food addiction, do not say food is fuel, you shouldn't like it. We're saying you should like it appropriately. Enjoy that strawberry or that cherry, but then you'll be able to push your plate away at the end because you're full and you're done. But what happens with processed food is they take that dopamine, which is our natural birthright to enjoy, and they potentiate it through this engineering process. If you flavor something, they put strawberry flavoring into a strawberry to make it ultra strawberry. So it's it's like ultra processed, it's ultra whatever. And that means it's ultra dopamine. It's too much dopamine. And that's the thing that makes addiction. It's the body, the brain has to adapt to that ultra, that boost of dopamine. And once it starts to adapt, that's the phenomena of addiction. You start to develop what we call tolerance. I need more chips to get the same effect as the first one little bit of, of, of chocolate which was delicious yesterday now i need the whole bar and then by next week i'm exaggerating but eventually i'm going to yeah, need two or three bars to yeah. get you getting tolerance and when that starts to happen you're trying to chase that initial feeling of just that one little chocolate piece that you had at the beginning we call that chasing the dragon in the addiction world you're doing it with food too and so uh now you're starting to get this um focus on the chocolate or the whatever it is and that's the phenomenon of addiction it's, right. it's 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 the dog chasing its tail and it can never get the tail but the more it can't get it the more it wants it and it just it drives a person crazy yeah it's certainly i've certainly i think we've all probably felt that urge to eat something when we're not hungry and and, and wondered why you know we, exactly. we felt the urge to reach for something maybe not eat hundreds yes. of them but certainly reach for the bag or not be able yeah. to stop when you want to stop i mean i think we've all so, in there. Or, Oreos is, is mine. Oreos is mine. Yeah. So I don't buy them. But um, dopamine is false hunger. It's yeah. it's false hunger. It makes you feel hungry, but you're not. Tell me a bit about maybe you've mentioned already what the impacts are, because I think we don't necessarily think of this as victimless, but I don't think we think of it in the same way as we do drug addiction or te- you know smoking. We we don't. Uh, right. But as you point out, there are health impacts of this as well. Oh my God, there are. And there, and and it's probably on the level of addiction, it's probably similar to smoking. So if I start smoking cigarettes, I'm not getting lung cancer tomorrow. I'm going to get lung cancer in or emphysema. I'm going to get that in 10, 15 years. But it's pretty much in the books that I'm going to get something. It takes a while though. So it, now if I start using crystal meth, by next year, I'm on the I'm on the street with no more rent and my pants are mm-hmm. hanging off my, my body because I'm yeah. so skinny. So, I mean, some addictions take you harder. Fentanyl takes you harder. Alcohol, not as quickly as those drugs, but they, they get you too. Um, but, but sugar, it is just as devastating as any of the other addictions. It just takes longer. And we don't call it, like, if I die of an alcohol-related disease, it'll say on my, on my, um, autopsy it'll say it'll say cirrhosis secondary to alcoholism right we should be saying diabetes secondary to sugar addiction we don't we just call it diabetes we should be saying obesity related conditions secondary to the food the, the processed food that we're eating but we don't we stop at the fact that and and if you think about what are the leading causes of death in society cancer stroke and heart disease all 
And I, I, of course, we all have to die, but we don't have to die so young and with these lingering chronic illnesses like uh, uh, diabetes and whatnot. And we should be calling those things diabetes secondary to our food, our processed food addiction. Dr. Vera Tarman is with us this half hour. She is medical director of Renison, which is one of Canada's largest treatment centers for substance abuse. She's author of 2019's Food Junkies, Recovery from food addiction. This is a subject we've touched on before on this show, but ultra-processed foods and why we crave them, why we eat them when we're not hungry, what the impact is, what's happening in our brains. Dr. Tarman, I suppose maybe we can start broadly. Uh, What do you think's needed in the regulatory way? Is there anything that we should be doing to try to curb this, Uh, the way we tackled, uh, the way we continue to talk about tackling alcoholism, the way we, we are tackling smoking and so on? Well, we have to take it seriously. Like, that's the thing. You you you, you nailed that right at the very beginning. We, we kind of laugh about it, say, yeah, we're addicted, but we don't really acknowledge that we are. And part of that is because the food industry has no incentive to help us with this. Uh, and it's the same as the cigarette industry has no incentive. And we, we often say that sugar is the new tobacco. Like, it's basically the same. Like I said, it's a similar process of a, a development of the addiction is the ubiquity of, of everybody used to smoke, everybody eats sugar now. Um, so so just the first thing is we have to acknowledge this and take it seriously. That's the first thing. And then uh, uh, then what we have to do is find some way to manage with uh, the, like the food industry is not going to, it's not our friend on this. So uh, how to get politicians to be willing to tax it. So taxing is one thing. And, and I believe that there are countries that do that, but I don't think we've done that or not not in any significant way. We've even made the argument to say, well, we can we can uh, tax people who require things like diabetes and uh, and, and all right. this stuff because they're eating because stuff. oftentimes you're yeah. sort of targeting disadvantaged communities. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's, that, yeah, there's a lot of lot of it's nuances. Not fair, there. It's not it's not fair to them. You're right, because especially where we talk about food deserts where there's no there's you can't get any food at all except uh, processed food in a particular mm-hmm. area. You're right. We're targeting the wrong people. So so some of it has to be policy, but we got to get the, we, we have to get the, the political will. And part of that is going to be that uh, I think personally myself that we have to get people themselves in the same way that we did with tobacco, in the same way that we're doing it, the opiate crisis. It's mm-hmm. the families themselves. It's the people themselves that are saying enough already. And and so how do we do that? We do that by our purse. We don't buy that stuff for one thing. Okay, here's one. Uh, this is all on the level of people. Now, if, if you're a smoker, you feel like a pariah. You have to go outside and smoke out in the wintertime. Okay, this is going to sound crazy, but I would love to see the day where we ask people with desserts and chips and whatnot to go out, go outside. And if they're going to eat that <laughs> stuff, they should eat it out there. Let them, I don't want to say feel like a pariah, but we make it, we open it up as something that's, oh, let's have this. We're having such a good time that it's not part of the good time, that it's actually um, a poison. And that if you're going to do it, well, we'll tolerate it. Okay. Right. You I suppose there's no such us. thing as second hand chips but but i i see where you're going with this i mean i think it's i think it's but i i see what you're trying to say is we need yes. to change our mindset around this a little yes, bit the social norms simply harmless smoking how about individually yes. i mean you've you've dealt with people who who have food addiction uh okay. what do you what do you tell them i mean how where do you begin if you feel like you're if you feel like you want to fight back against those urges Okay, so you you actually said a very interesting thing. You said there's no such thing as secondhand chips. But in a way, you could make the argument that there is. Because when we're talking about addiction, it's all about people, places, things. It's cues. If it's in my face constantly, I'm going to reach for it. When we've done research like that, where you have the the little uh, bowl of jellies in front of you on your desk, more people will eat that stuff because it's there. And if it's ubiquitous like this, it is. It's a kind of secondhand exposure. 
And that stuff is potent. With addiction, it's as potent as the substance itself is having the constant cues. And that's what the food industry works with. So I think I'm getting wrapped up in getting into a rant. So I don't know if I've answered No, no, your- not at all. I mean, I just, I guess, <laughs> I, 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 what I was saying, I guess, I mean, there is, you know, part of a real push around getting people to stop smoking and forcing yeah. it outside and so on was the idea of the dangers of secondhand smoke. Yes, we haven't really yeah. seen that in the same way with 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 ultra processed foods. But I guess I was really curious, you've dealt with people directly who yes. have food addiction. Uh, where do you where do you begin to, to sort of fight back and, and 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 sort of break the habit, so to speak? Okay, you know what? The, 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 one of the things that happens, this is why I'm so happy that you're speaking with me, because whenever I speak publicly, uh, what ends up happening is, is that people go, Oh my God, that's me. I thought this was something weird. It's actually me. Why do I pick up, go to the fridge constantly and wonder what can I do to feel better? It's, this is, this is that dynamic. So just, just becoming, uh, when a person comes to see me, just to validate that this is a real thing. This isn't because there's something weird about you. You're greedy, you're a pig, you're whatever it is that you're thinking you are. No, this is actually you. You're one of the subset of people who are more vulnerable to addiction. And instead of cigarettes or uh, alcohol, this is typical for women. They go for the cakes, the men go for the beer, at least in the old days. Old days meaning a number of years ago, until the yeah. until the alcohol industry cottoned on and now they made alcohol very attractive to women too. But anyway, uh, to, to say that it's not just because of your poor willpower, this is you under the, the um, lure of something, of, of an intentional group of people, what we call dealers, food dealers, food pushers, who are trying to get you. And there's a subsection of people and you are one of them and that is normal. And so many people are like, oh my God, thank you. And and where do you get that? By me being able to speak um, like this and then therefore other people speaking. I have a Facebook group, for example. It's not, it's not so much about that specifically. It's about there are resources out there and the mm-hmm. more that people are talking about it, the more people are starting to develop those resources. And we are actually now at a point, thank God, finally, I've been in this field a long time. And I would say that this year and last year, we're really seeing the tipping point of people coming in, recognizing this, offering services. There is help now. There really is help now for this thing that we call food addiction, which is not an eating disorder. It's a food addiction and uh, or it's it's an addiction, processed food addiction, whatever you want to call it. And there are tools, but we're reaching into the addiction uh, tool bag, which we didn't know about before to, to use it for food, but it actually exists and it's helping people. Well, Dr. Thomas, I appreciate your insight on this. You clear, I mean, this is a subject you know well. Thank you so much. That'll be certainly be food for thought, if you'll excuse the awful pun. Right on. Thank you so much. From the very beginning of our fight against climate change and the price on pollution, was to put more money in people's pockets and uh, encourage protecting the planet, and that's exactly what we've seen over the past number of years. That was the prime minister answering questions in the House of Commons about lifting the carbon tax on home heating oil in the fall, uh, which created a huge scandal, of course, because it really applied only to the Atlantic provinces where uh, home heating oil is is used mostly, although it's used in Ontario and other parts of the country as well to a far lesser extent. Uh, It turned into a big political football as these things are wont to do. And this week they sent out the carbon tax rebates. You may have gotten one. Check your bank account. Uh, they do send them, by the way. Don't believe all the don't believe all the hype. Uh, it's not perfect. It's not perfect, but it's also not that punitive, uh, by the way. But uh, we had this conversation over the holidays uh, and and other times as well. I've had it over the years. You know, we are asked collectively to make sacrifices to some extent, uh, or to think about at least how we can help in the fight against climate change. How to help reduce emissions for our country. 
And sometimes it feels like, well, okay, you know, sure, sure. I mean, we see the impacts of what's happening around us. I mean, you can have conversations about exactly how much those impacts, such as, you know, a, a record wildfire season or the droughts or the dry, sort of the incredible dryness we're seeing. We can have conversations about how much that is due directly to climate change. But we have to understand that it's happening around us. It is. It is. You can go and Google something and find someone who disagrees, but almost anyone who's ever studied this, anyone who has any knowledge of this uh, will agree that things are happening. Things are changing. And so it's it, it, we're, we're in a situation where we have to do something, right? And you're right. I mean, if you're thinking, well, wait a second, what about the Chinas of the world and so on? Canada is still proportionally per capita we emit a lot of carbon. We just do. I mean, we have a pretty carbon-intensive oil industry in this country. Um, we can talk about that after, amongst other things. But all that being said, one of the issues around this whole fight is the transparency and the success of it. So if governments are going to sort of hang their hat on making a real run at fighting this, do they succeed? Are they going to succeed? And you can forgive Canadians for being a little bit skeptical. Because over since 1990, we've been given plans with aspirational names one after the other. There was Canada's Green Plan, the Turning the Corner Plan, a climate change plan for the purposes of the Kyoto Protocol Implementation Act. That was a Harper one, a bit wordy, not so catchy. The list goes on and on and on. And they all have one thing in common, failure. Since 1990, the federal government has developed more than 10 plans to reduce emissions. It has spent billions of dollars on developing and implementing said plans. And despite those efforts, greenhouse gas emissions in this country were higher in 2021 than they were in 1990. And according to the Auditor General, this latest plan is no different. Better, but no different. Canada's emissions reduction plan will not reach the target of cutting greenhouse gas output by 40 to 45% below the 2005 levels by 2030. And that would mean Canada is missing its commitment under the UN Paris Agreement on climate change. So we thought we would check in on this issue with Jerry DeMarco. He's the Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development at the Office of the Auditor General of Canada. He produces these reports. Jerry, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for inviting me, Ben. This is, I mean, this is a, a topic that we discuss often, or at least the offshoots, the impacts of it are talked about a lot. Tell me a bit about these progress reports and how often you do them and, and why they're done. Yeah, so we issued our very first um, climate net zero report uh, this past fall. And under the law, it's required to be done every five years, starting actually uh, next December. But we decided to come in early, given the urgency of the climate crisis, and report one year early. And I've also committed to do the reports every year instead of just every five years. Right. And so this is an offshoot of what you did in, in the fall. Is that right? Yeah, so the the um, the report that we put out is our very first report under the Net Zero Act. It's not an entirely new area of work for us. We've been reporting on climate as an office for for you know decades. But when when Parliament said, Commissioner, we want you to tell us Parliament how Canada is doing every five years starting in 2024, we said sure. But we we started one year early, as I mentioned, and we're going to do it every year now. Tell me what you found, because I don't think um, some of your, I don't think the report card would come as a huge surprise to people who watch this space relatively closely, but uh, you found some, you found some disconcerting stuff, I'd say, in all honesty. Yeah, it was, I was disappointed, um, not surprised, but disappointed that 
you know, CAD is still not on track to meet its current target. And uh, by current target, I mean the one for 2030, six years from now. We've had lots of targets over the last 30 years and lots of plans with all sorts of innovative names and so on, but we failed to meet any target. And I was hoping that this time around with a much more detailed emissions reduction plan from the government, the, the weight of legislation behind the plan and so on, that we would have at least a plan that adds up to the 40% target of reduction in uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, but the plan doesn't quite add up to 40%. So it's a plan that falls short of what's needed to meet our next target. Yeah, within the uh, the report itself, there's actually a graphic that shows all the names of all the plans over the years. So Canada's Green Plan, the National Action Program on Climate Change, Turning the Corner Plan, the Pan-Canadian Framework on Clean Growth and Climate Change. I mean, you'll remember these names. They all sound very similar. The impact, the effect of them, though, unfortunately, and you point this out, is that um, here we are in 2024. And despite these repeated plans and the many, the lot, you know, the billions spent on them, we haven't reduced our greenhouse gas emissions, at least not in, in a way that one would expect. No, in terms of absolute reductions, we haven't uh, accomplished that yet. So from 1990, which is around the time of the Green Plan, one of the ones that you mentioned just now, to now, our emissions are up over 10%. Yet all of the other G7 countries, their emissions are down over that time period. So even though we had a plan, another plan, as you mentioned, called Turning the Corner, we haven't actually turned the corner. We turned the wrong corner and our emissions kept going up and uh, they should be going down. What are some of the the glaring issues that you've seen in this latest report card in terms of where we've been where we've been and where we've been heading in the, in the last while? Yeah, if you look at our our uh, re- latest report plus our lessons learned report from 2021, we've tried to weave together all of the the good, the bad and the ugly of the last 30 years of climate action and inaction in Canada. Probably some of the fundamental problems are the targets are not backed by strong plans or actions. So they make a good commitment, the good intention is there, but the follow-up, the you know, the after delivery service is not there. The long-term view, this is one of the key things we've emphasized in our reports. Canadian government tends to get bogged down with short-term problems and doesn't keep an eye on the ball in terms of in this case, 2030 or the next target in 2050, to make sure that all of its actions align to where they want to go. And and short-term political expediency sometimes gets in the way of long-term success. Um, There are other factors as well. One of the ones from a sector point of view is Canada is still over-reliant in terms of its economy on emission-intensive sectors like oil and gas. We aren't transitioning to a more green economy as quickly as some other countries around the world. And the more we're reliant on the on the on fossil fuels and so on, the much more difficult it is to bring our emissions curve down. Yeah, I, I was interested in in some of what you had written in the report. A few of them was just assumptions. Assumptions that there wouldn't be pushback over some of these measures. Assumptions perhaps that these wouldn't end up in front of the courts. And 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 that has uh, and also just you can't manage what you can't measure, right? And in this case, oftentimes a lot of these I, I guess they were targets or they were they were clauses put into these programs that we really didn't have any transparency around. So a, cu- a couple of issues there around how these plans were were built out in a way that was uh, both tough to measure their success and also didn't take into account what might have been, I mean, you won't, don't want to assume that these were natural barriers in the way, but didn't take into account a lot of the potential pitfalls that might exist out there to making these come true. 
Yeah, with our office having audited this area for so long now, we can see patterns. And we would hope that the federal government would learn from these past lessons and avoid repeating the pattern. So we've seen in the past overly optimistic assumptions, just like you just mentioned, for example, on the timeliness of rollout of new measures, such as the oil and gas cap or the clean fuels regulation. But we know, looking back, that these these measures often take longer to produce than they expected, and they often get watered down in the consultation process with industry and so on. So we would expect the federal government to learn from that and come up with a plan that factors in those barriers to success in the past and avoid repeating the same mistakes of the past. I, uh, it is an improvement, though. I, I should say this. The plan is more detailed, is closer to meeting a target than than it is um, than others have been in terms of it's, you know, probably in the range in the 30 percent range, 30 to the 36 percent range in terms of the measures as uh, according to Environment Canada itself. But it's still not up to par in terms of, you know, getting a pass in 2030 that, yes, we've we've reached 40 percent reductions. Yeah, I mean, it, it lays bare to how difficult these plans are in a country set up the way Canada is. Uh, but it, there was a few things in there, too, that I found interesting, because, of course, I don't want to talk. Obviously, you're not here to talk about individual political and policy things that have happened in the past while. But it was interesting to note with what happened with the with the carbon tax and heating and Atlantic Canada and so on, that it didn't seem like, according to your findings at least, that they had done much in the way of making sure, of identifying who vulnerable populations might be in these circumstances. So there's a bit of a a knowledge gap as well here, which might explain why they're being caught off guard sometimes, this government at least, uh, with some of the things that don't go according to plan with their plan. Yeah, it is unfortunate in Canada how controversial some of the climate measures are and how politicized the debate gets. We should have a good debate about you know what's needed to do to be done to to meet the the in, incredible challenge of avoiding catastrophic climate change, but we shouldn't be you know debating the basics of of the fact that the climate is warming uh, at a at a rate and it's because of of human caused pollution. So if Canada could help uh, help itself by depoliticizing the debate and not. Um, alienating communities, regions, um, and so on with its measures, then there'd be that that greater buy-in and you'd have a more lasting effort to to address climate change with that buy-in as opposed to um, causing unnecessary debate, disadvantaging certain regions or certain populations or certain uh, or certain communities. It's unfortunate that that's occurred. it's it's uh, it's not inevitable though. I mean, there are ways to do this that is both fair and effective at climate change, uh, at fighting climate change, fair to everyone, and effective at bringing down emissions. Jerry DeMarco is the Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development in the Office of the Auditor General of Canada. We're talking about uh, their latest progress report on the government's uh, aims to cut greenhouse gas output in this country by 40 to 45 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. There are many things that are involved in that that you'll recognize uh, that involve oil and gas, uh, EVs, carbon taxes, and so on. There's a whole basket of things that that entails. But uh, we're looking at the progress report right now. Uh, so, Jerry, when you when you look at the recommendations, you're recommending some stuff it's it's some of it's fairly uh, i guess technical it's about making sure we have the right information which is which is feels like a gap still ironically after 34 years of this it feels like you would know that you need to set targets and then see if you're going to meet them or not uh, that's that has there's not enough of that in in even in the latest uh, the latest plan yeah so information gaps are still a problem very surprising to me that they are 
I would say the two areas that trouble me the most are methane emissions, which is methane is a very strong compound in terms of warming potential in the atmosphere. We don't have a good handle yet in Canada on the magnitude of, of uh, methane emissions and how what we need to do to really bring them down in absolute terms. And then also forestry, still still a bit of a dog's breakfast in terms of how Canada accounts for carbon pollution relating to the forestry sector. Uh, we've been auditing this, and it's still difficult to tell, you know, in a given year whether Canada considers the forests as sequestering, that is, stocking carbon by pulling it out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis, or is it a source of, of emissions from forestry operations, uh, wildfires, and so on. Those two areas, methane and forestry, Canada still has quite a ways to go and just getting proper information to make good decisions. Yeah, and the wildfire piece would probably be an important one given what we just saw in 2023. What other recommendations? I mean, where else would you like to see improvements made? Because it feels like here, I think the problem is that it breeds a certain cynicism, right? Because we're asked, we're being asked to make sacrifices. And to make those sacrifices, I think people need to be convinced that it's worthwhile, that it's working, in other words. And you mentioned that this plan is working better than many previous plans, and we've seen a lot of them. But where else would you like to see improvement made, improvement made in this plan uh, so that it actually achieves and, and it convinces people that it's worth the worth the sacrifice yeah so it absolutely is worth doing i mean limiting global warming and avoiding significant impacts from flooding and wildfires and heat waves and so on is the least we can do to avoid leaving an even more impoverished planet for future generations the federal government has has to take a central role but it is a whole of society issue so the provinces the territories individuals like you and me and and the and the private sector all have to play their part. Where would you like to see other progress from the federal government? Improved realistic assumptions in their plans, increased coordination amongst federal departments. So we've seen in some instances two different departments within the same level of government, federal government, going in different directions on on uh, say for example hydrogen uh, and its potential for reducing greenhouse gases. Also being more transparent with Canadians about how well the measures are working and whether they're getting value for money. Um, you know, economists will tell us that carbon pricing is a, a very efficient way of bringing down pollution, but we haven't seen really good information coming out of the uh, federal government on how much uh, we're getting in terms of bang for the buck for each measure, because each measure does have a cost, whether it's to our pocketbooks or to industry or to government itself. We'd like to see more transparency on the emission reductions they're getting and the value for money that Canadians are getting for each each unit of emission reduction. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point because I feel like part of the problem here is that uh, people lose faith when they don't understand or they don't get transparency. People just don't understand necessarily what it is they're they're being asked to do, how these programs work or how these initiatives are supposed to work and if they're successful or not. Jerry, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. I'm born in this town. I actually live in the house that I'm born in. And it's kind of, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thought to think that, that this town might be over. And I would have to start all over somewhere else. But if that's the case, then that's exactly what we'll do. I don't know if you've seen the images of what's happening in Iceland these days. That's a resident of a town called Grindavik, which is in southwestern Iceland. About three hundred, about 3,700 people call, called it home 
but volcanic activity has forced the evacuation of the community. And at this point, a very uncertain future. There have been a series of earthquakes and eruptions around the community just southwest of the capital, Reykjavik, about 50 kilometers. It's not a big place, Iceland. It doesn't have a lot of people. I think it's only about three or 50,000 people total. So you can imagine a, a town of 3,700 is actually significant uh, there. Uh, last week, lava poured into some homes after a fourth volcanic eruption in the last three years. And experts now say that after nearly a millennium of dormancy, nearly a millennium of dormancy, that that strip of land where it, where this town is has entered a new volcanic era, or it did in March of 2021. So we've had three eruptions, that one in 2021, another one in 2022, one earlier this summer, and this latest one. Um, and, and the last time there were multiple eruptions on the peninsula was in the early 13th century, right? That's the last time this happened. It's a long time ago. The reason this latest one has been talked about a lot, maybe you've seen the stories or the images out there, um, is according to National Geographic for three main reasons. Uh, the ramp up to the main event was unusual compared to the last three, uh, combined with its vigorous opening salvo of molten rock. So it was, it was intense. It also threatens to destroy that town. And its overall behavior has created an uncomfortable amount of uncertainty as to what may happen next. I mean, so much so that they're, they figure this could go on for more than a decade, this uncertainty, not knowing when and if this would erupt, and therefore it's too dangerous to live there. A former prime minister in Iceland proposed building a whole new town from scratch, right? Um, so there's lots going on beneath the surface to help us look beneath to dig beneath uh, the crust is Mike Burton. He's a volcanologist uh, and a professor at the University of Manchester in England. Mike, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's hello to all your listeners. Indeed, uh, it, it's this is an interesting one because I think we're we're mesmerized by the images of what's been happening, not just recently, but over the past little while in Iceland. Uh, but 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 in terms of for a volcanologist, what are we witnessing uh, specifically? I guess at this point in the south of the country, or the southwest of the country. So yeah, they, they are, there is dramatic footage, and it, and it is a very compelling spectacle. Particularly in the you know the lead up to this has been quite dramatic in the sense that there was a lot of precursors. So it, it, they felt something was going to happen, then it kind of went quiet for a bit, and then it came back, and then it did a big eruption, then it did a small eruption. So the, yes, there, there is very interesting scientific sides to this, but the, the, it's really important to remember there's real people involved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the town of Grindavik has been evacuated and those people may not be going back for some time. And several thousand people's lives have been completely disrupted. So while, while you know, it, it's a spectacle, we, we there are there is a human side to it, which is really tough as well. But from a volcanological perspective, what's going on, we think, is that this is one of many volcanically active areas on Iceland. Uh, the whole of the island is obviously volcanically formed, and it's by no means the only place where vo volcanic eruptions can occur. I think that has to be really important that even though there's a center of activity there at the moment, there's no nothing stopping other volcanoes in the rest of the island erupting in the future. But uh, th this is a, a very active zone on the um, southwest corner of the island, uh, the Reykjanes Peninsula. It's actually quite close to where the main airport is in Keflavik and not too far away from uh, Reykjavik, which is just a bit further north from the Reykjanes Peninsula. But those are not, neither of those are immediately threatened by, by this activity. And what's going on here is that there's basically a pulsatory volcanic uh, process whereby 
quite long periods of time, you get pulses of, of magmatism where you get magma rising up towards the surface um, and that generates the uh, requirements for a, a sequence of, of eruptions. And this could be the beginning of, of several years of frequent eruptions. Um, and the reason why people think that is that there was a spate of activity about 800 years ago, recorded in, in around 1240, that lasted for about 20 years when there was a lot of eruptions in, in this zone. And it, the impression that people have is that this is a repeat of what happened 800 years ago. And so the likelihood is the next 10, 20 years will have frequent eruptions similar to what we've seen already. I suppose uh, 800 years seems a long time because, of course, part of part of what the reporting on this has suggested is that it is entered. It has been sort of a, a rediscovery of a fault line or or a reawakening. But I suppose geologically, 800 years is a is a snap of the fingers, right? Completely, yeah. I mean, 800 years is nothing. The Earth is about four billion years old. You know, uh, modern humans have been around for 130 thousand years. So, uh, 800 years is is not very long at all. And I think it's quite interesting if you, if you just, everyone listening actually could have some fun just going on Google Earth um, and in the satellite imagery part of Google Earth, you can kind of zoom into the Reykjanes Peninsula in the southwest corner and just, you can see the whole thing is just a big lava flow, a whole series of overlapping lava flows. There There isn't really much terrain. It's There's not very large mountains or clear volcanoes with a, with a classic kind of volcanic edifice. Uh, it's very much more lots and lots and lots of lava flows which have been just overlapping and, and um, coming out. So, uh, and that's extremely similar to the style of activity we've seen in the in these last two eruptions. So, so yes, you can imagine how over geological time, over thousands of years and millions of years, this allows such a landscape to develop. It's just layer upon layer upon layer of lava flows um, going all the way down. Yeah, I, I just did that on, on Google Earth, and you're right. It is it is quite the terrain. I mean, Iceland itself is is a is a unique place. <laughs> it's a unique place. I was surprised to see that it had been decades uh, since population, there was a significant population displacement because of volcanic activity there. Yes. So there was the um, – I, I completely agree, actually. If, I mean, I know that Iceland's already a big tourist place, but it is a fascinating place to go to, both for – Geology, but the, the people are amazing there. I, I've, I've been there several times, and I've always been very happy to be there and, and found the people to be extremely self-reliant. I mean, there, there's 300,000 people is the population of the Icelandic population. They're in the middle of the Atlantic. They have massive challenges with natural hazards to do with the weather, but also floods from glaciers and earthquakes and obviously volcanoes and and so they they're a very self-reliant and very robust population who are um i heard the other day that all of them take education in geology up until the age of 18 so they're probably one of the most well educated when it comes to geological processes population on the planet and and so uh, yes they they it, it, it's just the most amazing place to visit and i, I do highly recommend it
Yeah, good to know. Good to know your your backyard. I suppose uh, studying geology, uh, making it mandatory to eighteen would be music to the ears of a volcanologist. Uh, but 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 necessary there. Which by the way, the population numbers puts the uh, thirty seven hundred people who live in Grindavik. That is the town we, that you may have seen that has been hit by these lava flows, where there's sort of a crack in the middle of the town. Now that's the town that's been evacuated. It puts that number into perspective. That is a. I mean, it's not a huge number of people by any standards, but it is a significant number by. Uh, the total population in Iceland. Clearly, I mean, as you pointed out earlier, Grindavik, which has kind of been the epicenter of this, it appears, at least according to safety officials, they don't think people will be able to go back anytime soon. They, they're they bracing now for an extended period, as you mentioned, uh, of this activity, or at least the uncertainty around this activity. Yes, I, 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 and I think, sadly, there was probably a moment of hope over Christmas when, when it looked like the activity levels reduced and people had started to go back. And, and I think there was a kind of intermediate position when they were erecting barriers and there was a hope that maybe lava barriers could, could help to protect Grindavik. But with this recent activity, very sadly, there was uh, two, uh, they call them fissure eruptions. The, the best way to imagine it is that the lava, the magma, when it rises towards the surface, it comes up like a sheet, a two-dimensional surface, which is vertical. So it, wow. it's coming straight up. So you've got to imagine a sheet of paper which is on its edge, facing upwards, and so it. it but lava, <laughs> but full of lava and intruding towards the surface, propagating towards the surface, and then when it intersects the surface, then it creates a fissure, a line along which lava is coming out. And what happened is in the most recent very small eruption, which only lasted a day or so, there was an initial fissure which was to the north of Grindavik, and it in that that was beyond where they'd erected a barrier. When I talk about these barriers, what they did is they just bulldozed soil and old lava into a big pile, several meters high, along and hundreds of meters long, with the idea being that the lava just kind of builds up against that and then that prevents it from kind of making a flow towards the the town. That actually worked quite well uh, for the short-lived eruption. But then a further fissure, just a little bit closer to the town of Grindavik, opened up. And and that destroyed a couple of houses and then yeah. that's too. But it, it was very clearly a sign that, you know, this isn't stopping and it could, that fish, that whole line could be opening up and closing at, at any time. So it's very, very tricky to see how to make that maintained, you know, populated into the future. Mike Burton is a volcanologist and a professor at the University of Manchester in England. We're talking about uh, all the seismic activity we've been witnessing in Iceland of late, specifically in the town of Grindavik, which is a small fishing town, but just near the airport, not too far uh, south from the capital, Reykjavik. People have been evacuated. There's been lava flows. There's been fissures. You know, houses have been destroyed, just a few. There's a concern that this area will be uninhabitable for uh, for quite a period of time now. Uh, obviously, everyone, Mike, if you're, if everyone who doesn't live in Iceland must be looks at this and thinks, oh, I remember back when when there was that eruption and then there was the ash cloud and all the flights were cancelled. Uh, we haven't ta- been talking about that threat specifically this time around, have we? Well, no. Uh, fortunately, uh, I went to the uh, to Iceland during that 2010 eruption, and it really was very dramatic. Just how much impact that that eruption had, and the major reason why this is different is the there's two things really but the most important i think is the composition of the magma driving the eruption is quite different in this eruption compared to the 2010 eruption so the 2010 eruption was in a volcanic center called 
I uh, fatle yokatul, and yes, that that erupted, and it actually began in some ways not dissimilar to the kinds of eruptions we're seeing here with a fissure eruption, and in addition, it was it was going on beneath a glacier initially, and so there was a little bit of water rock water magma interaction, which also increased the explosivity. But I think primarily it was the actual the the the, the nature of the magma, the more evolved magma, which drove the explosivity. Um, yeah. Whereas in in this eruption. It tends to just do these nice long lava flows and not build up a big uh, volcanic edifice. Yeah, it, it reminds me. I mean, I, I've been to the Kilauea uh, volcano in in Hawaii, uh, and 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 sort of the, it's interesting to see how lava flows work. And I guess a lot of people were caught somewhat off guard by what happened in 2010 because it was uh, did have such an incredible impact. Considering how common volcanic eruptions are in Iceland, I think that was that was a big awakening for uh, for the rest of us about just how much of an impact they can have. That's absolutely right. And and it, it had a multi-billion dollar impact on the global economy uh, because it disrupted a lot of uh, air traffic across the Atlantic. And I think it was a combination of factors there which which produced the, 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 the challenges. One is that it lasted for several months and was continuously emitting ash to an altitude which was high enough to affect, uh, where it could affect flights. And of course, then there was the general wind direction from Iceland at that period of time was going towards the southeast and so going over Europe and, and that created the challenges. But but I think again, as as we were talking about geological time, you know, if you think about modern the modern world, I mean things the the, the airplane was only invented by the Wright brothers only just over a hundred years ago. So our experience of having this interconnected globalized economy is very new. I mean, over, you know, basically one lifetime, more than like 70, 80 years, the whole world is transformed. And and so we are much more vulnerable to volcanic eruptions than we realize because we haven't yet been tested very much against what is potentially feasibly possible for volcanoes to do. And I, I don't want to be like a doomer, but but that there are many ways in which you could imagine a major eruption having unprecedented impacts because we have not had such an event in this globalized economy. Um, and so uh, in a way, I think we're quite vulnerable to these things. And, and that's one of the reasons why I'm very keen and happy to work on volcanoes, because I think uh, at some point in the future, it's going to be really important that we, we're understanding how they work. Yeah. What would be the last? I mean, here I, I'm on the west coast of Canada. So, of course, we always think about St. Helens, which was a pretty big one, but didn't necessarily have a global impact. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of volcanic activity in Indonesia over the years. I've covered a few of those over time. Uh, Kilauea continues to, to erupt. But I mean, well, you're right. We haven't really had... We haven't had a, something like we a, like a Pompeii that we think of, right? We've, we haven't had anything like that in a, in a long time. Well, well, no, I mean, um, that's correct. And and I think it would be quite shocking. And, and, you know, continental North America has had recent volcanism in a in geological sense over a very wide area. And, and the chances in the next hundred years of there being some further eruptions is, is, is quite high. And I know that colleagues in the USGS in particular have been working on scenarios to kind of make responses to a potential eruption in, in New Mexico and Arizona and, and you know, off uh, on the West Coast um, to get to be ready. If I'm honest, the, the area which concerns me the most in terms of where you could have great disruption, it's the area you mentioned Vesuvius. 
or Pompeii, which was damaged by Vesuvius uh, nearly 2,000 years ago. There's another area just to the west of Vesuvius uh, in the town of, in the city of Naples in Italy, where uh, called Campi Fligrei, which is Fligrean fields in English. Right. Um, and the Campi Fligrei is like a great big, it's a bit like Yellowstone, okay? It's a caldera. It has done huge eruptions in the past, producing like devastating impacts in in, in continental Europe. And that's got a lot of unrest at the moment. And, and you know, the chances of it doing, there's fortunately a bit like earthquakes, there's a frequency versus magnitude relationship. So the biggest eruptions are the rarest, but nevertheless, Campi Fligre is undergoing huge amounts of uh, unrest. There's a big inflation of the of the hydrothermal system there and lots of gas coming out. And we don't know when it's going to erupt, but at some point it probably will. And, and the, the danger is there's millions of people living very close by. Yeah. So uh, when that goes, it could be very difficult indeed. Yeah, if you've ever been to Pompeii, you'll see the remnants of, of what happened with Vesuvius many, 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 many hundreds of years, well, thousands of years ago now. Mike, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Fascinating stuff. It's been a pleasure. Great to talk.